I shuddered when I saw a crimson flame through the porthole instead of the usual starry sky at the night horizon of the planet. Vast pillars of light were bursting into the sky, melting into it and flooding over with all the colours of the rainbow. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. That's the first half of a quote by Alexander Ivanchenkov. And why am I talking about Alexander Ivanchenkov? Well, Matt, 15th of June 1978, first flight into space, a retired guitar-playing Soviet cosmonaut. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Yeah, so he went up on Soyuz 29, T6, 147 days, 12 hours, 37 minutes in space. And uh, I'm going to finish the rest of that quote. An area of red luminescence merged smoothly into the black of the cosmos. The intense and dynamic changes in the colours and forms of the pillars and garlands made me think of visual music. Finally, we saw that we had entered directly into the Aurora Borealis. Matt, first question. Mm. Have you ever entered Mm. directly into the Aurora Borealis? In my mind, Jamie, in my mind. I, did, I, did I tell you I've seen it twice? <laughs> yes, you have. I don't like talking about no, it, No, no, but have you been on a Soyuz flying directly into it? I can't say I have. So, yes, exactly 40 years ago, today, Alexander did precisely that. How what cool a beautiful is that? quote. Yeah. Um, Matt, should we talk about William Parsons? William Parsons, third Earl of Ross. That's the one. <laughs> The reason why, yeah, 17th of June, 1800, he was born. So his birthday's coming up. And uh, what he's famous for is the Leviathan of Parson Town. (laughs) No, and and I'll tell you what, this is actually really cool. So the Leviathan of Parson Town is an enormous telescope, 72 inches. 72 inches. That's a lot of inches. And just so you know, with, with telescopes... Every inch that you get is squared because it's pi r squared the surface area yeah, of, a, of, course. of a mirror. So, like every every inch is like massively important. So, seventy two inch. But Matt, you know, trust me, I know that stat. <laughs> um, but could you tell us where the name comes from? What's the history with that? Uh, well, I, well, I, I guess he's he is William Parsons, the third Earl of Ross from Parsons Town, and of course, Leviathan is something very big. Uh, and but what's amazing is actually what he did with his telescope. So he actually was the first person to reveal a spiral structure in the Whirlpool Galaxy, oh. or M fifty one Messier Object fifty one. So yeah, he yeah he started drawing spirals of the Whirlpool Galaxy. So he might be one of the first people ever to see um, like galaxies. So he named the uh, infamous Crab Nebula yeah. based on an earlier drawing made with his older 36, only 36-inch man. Yeah, literally half the size. And it resembled a crab. A, cra- a, few, a few years later, when the 72-inch telescope was in service, he produced an improved drawing of considerably different appearance. But the original original name stuck. Yeah, so actually, and I'm glad it did, Matt. Yeah, so actually, when you look at the Crab Nebula, if you've got a pretty decent telescope, you can sort of pick out the crab shape. 
But once your telescope gets more powerful, that crab shape disappears, so you never really know why it's called the Crab Nebula. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I don't want to brag or anything, Jamie, but I'll tell oh, you when we go. Patrick Moore showed my picture of the Crab Nebula on Sky at Night. You have mentioned it. <sighs> We're really going on the one-upmanship today, aren't we? <laughs> well, you hey, started Matt, it. You, hey, Matt, you know what it's time for? Yes. Space Word of, of the week. week. The great thing about this is, because we're in the same room, yeah. it, 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 I don't have to sync those bits I up. Oh, we haven't got the delay. We haven't got this like awkward delay between us that makes it sound I like I quite we're... like an awkward delay. But hey, you know, occasionally we have to be sitting next to each other. We don't like doing it often, but we're here. Yeah. Uh, Jamie, where are we recording the podcast this week? We're recording um, from uh, the infamous Metropolis Studios in Chiswick. Wow. Is, is, is this we? where Queen recorded The Miracle? It absolutely is. Whoa, yeah. dude. Yeah. And this is where we're recording a miracle of podcasts. Oh, <laughs> Matt, that was seamless. Knocked that out of the park. <laughs> so, Matt, what's yeah. our first space word? So, space word of the week. In our new series of space word of the week, I'm going to go with... Apoapsis. Ooh. Ooh. So what is an apoapsis? Well, it's that point in an orbit which is farthest from the primary. That's of right. Course. Yeah, so it's quite good because you can add like words at the end. So if I say apogee, mm. that is the furthest away part in an orbit away from the Earth. Right? Everybody. And apogee. <laughs> Live together. It's it's actually Greek. So G, I believe, is Greek for Earth. And oh, yeah. apo is for furthest. So furthest away from the Earth. So apogee. Uh, wh- what do you think the uh, term for being furthest away from the moon in a lunar orbit? Uh, isn't that... Well, you can work it Apaloon. Apaloon. Oh, yes. What about... Furthest away from Jupiter. So when Juno comes whizzing in, it obviously comes very, very close and then goes far, far away. When it's furthest away, what it, what's it called? Apajupe. Oh, close. And here's here's a bit of controversy for you. Apajove. But you're mixing your Greek and your Latin yeah. up. Ooh. So there's probably more appropriate words for it. Mm. But hey... There we go. Hey, let's not get bogged down, yeah? <laughs> um, the opposite, of course, of apo is peri. So perigee is when it's closest. Mm. And perijove is where, loon- where um, obviously, you've got your Juno spacecraft coming in really close. Obviously. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's a bit pedantic to have a go at that. But yeah. Yeah, so I like that. So there we go. Yeah. So you can, but obviously you can apply apo to, and peri to lots and lots of different bodies in the solar system. Yeah, it's can. something that your Kerbal space programmers will be. Oh, they're all. They're, they're all. They'll up be all on over this. it. They'll be all over it. Like a rash. Anyway, uh, they did a survey amongst Americans. Do, do Americans still believe in spaceflight? And mm. there was, and actually, yeah, most Americans still thought that it was really important that America led in spaceflight, which was really encouraging. And I think these statistics are really, really encouraging, and they're really not what I was expecting at all. So. What is the thing that most Americans think NASA should be doing? What prioritising? Well, I assume that it's getting us to the moon or Mars. Exactly, that's what you'd think. But 
they're the bottom two. What? <laughs> so only 13% think that that's a top priority to get to the moon, and only 18% think it's a top priority to get to Mars. So actually slightly more popular to go to Mars. Well, this is a really lovely surprise in one way, because some of the top um, votes are for wonderful reasons, aren't they? Yeah, well, I mean, check this out. Americans, Americans... Mm-hmm monitoring key parts of the Earth's climate system, 63% top of thought tree. it was top priority, and another 25% thought it was important. So only 11% thought that, that we shouldn't be bothered. See, I'd like to know who, who they asked. It definitely wasn't the Trump crowd. Um, <laughs> yeah, but that's weird. pulled us out of the... But it Paris must have treaty. been. That, that number so high, 63%, mm. it must be, that must be cross-party, as in Republicans and Democrats must. Uh, people who identify with yeah, those well, tribes. That's, that's fantastic. They, can you believe that? That's, that's excellent. really cool. And the next one down is monitoring asteroids. So it's the two... Our mate Debbie would be pleased. She w- she wouldn't laugh, wouldn't she? But that's really encouraging, isn't that's it? That's really encouraging. So that's really cool. That I like this one, Matt. Um, travel effects on human health. Nice bit of research there into how it would affect us. Ooh. Were we to go to Mars? Yes. Well, we do a lot of we did a lot of that about that in uh, the old Mars Nation talks. We did. Actually, Jamie, I should talk about space up. Before we oh, move yes, on to the you news. went to space up. I was um, swanning around Spain, and uh, and you <laughs> well, and I was working. You were working. You were um, well, doing t- great work at space up. Can you tell us about the event for well, people who don't know? Actually, I took a day off on Friday and interviewed Alan Bond, which is, trust me, one of the greatest interviews. You're excited. About I'm this very one, excited. Yeah. So that's going to be a two-parter, and not only is it going to be a two-parter, I'm going to ask everyone to soak it in and ask more questions because Alan's invited us round to his house. What? To further the conversation. If, if So anyone with questions after the Alan OMG. Bond ones. So look out for the Alan Bond interview. Yes. That's, that's, if you don't know who Alan Bond is, I tell you, he, he's amazing. He's one of the most intelligent people I've ever sat in a room with. Then I interviewed Robert Zubrin, and that's coming up in he's the... He's pretty intelligent. Yeah, he's also pretty intelligent. That's coming up in the show in shortly. Second... Interview with Zubrin. Yeah. And then I got up in the morning and went to Space Up to do a whole day event representing the BIS and the Interplanetary Podcast. Nice. Space Up London. How was it? It was really, really good. It was really, really good. A, it was at the King's College London, which of course is where many eminent scientists have been, like Arthur C. Clarke, etc. But it was re- that was really cool. So just the, the surroundings were really, really brilliant. And I've seen some of the best gigs of my life there, Matt. Oh, really? So yes. I yeah, saw yeah. an acoustic performance from Sufjan the wonderful Stevens. Sufjan ah. Stevens. And I saw a wonderful stripped down... In front of 200 people, I saw Richard Ashcroft mm. play a set. Mm, nice. It was great stuff, Matt. Oh. But anyway, back to Space Up. Uh, Sufjan's on our uh, playlist. Oh, he is. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Great track. Space Up. It's in this beautiful surroundings of the King's College. And obviously loads and loads of really interesting space... Nerds and space so geeks. So who was there of note? We had a few keynote speakers, and it started off <laughs> quite hilariously with Joshua Greenslade. Now, I'm going to play an interview right now of him as we walk down the street to the pub. It's three minutes long, but his whole shtick 
was how we shouldn't be we should be worried about space and he was being pessimistic what's hilarious about joshua greenslade he's got a very very boomy voice very very english so prepare yourself rest of the world here we go warning has been issued kaboom écoutez so yes we're walking to the pub i'm here with josh greenslade he's a yes i i am an observational astronomer currently finishing up my phd in galaxy formation and evolution so in about an hour after this walking down this lovely day in London, I'm going to go to the Royal Office and sit in an office for another five hours and continue to write uh, in my thesis. So looking forward to that. Oh, brilliant. So uh, you did a, a, a talk at Space Up yesterday. Uh, we've had two days of Space Up and uh, you've been very, very involved in the whole thing uh, with lots of brilliant contributions. But can you uh, actually describe your, um, your talk in as quick as possible? So many of these events often have a really optimistic nature to them, as they should, because space is an incredibly exciting place to be, and it's going to be an incredibly exciting next 20 years. So I thought it might be good to inject a bit of pessimism into the room and cynicism and actually look about what some of the kind of geopolitical problems might be once you start making space accessible. Because realistically, the only reasons that nations do anything is because of wealth, because of war, and because of world status. And now that we're starting to make space accessible, now that it's getting easier and easier to get up there, it's far and far more likely that there's going to be friction between these nations who, acting in their own interests, are going to be acting against the interests of other nations. So there's a lot of talk from various people and various politicians behind the scenes about the weaponization of space. It's very likely to happen in kind of the next 10 to 20 years as well. There's a lot of people who want to start making claims on asteroids and saying this asteroid belongs to a given particular country and only we are allowed to mine it. And even now, there's some countries, the USA and Luxembourg, have both legislated that they're allowed to mine asteroids for the purposes of profit. And already Brazil, uh, Russia and Belgium have already protested this because there is a UN treaty that was written 50 years ago that says you can't do this. So there's also a question of, is this treaty really fit for purpose? <laughs> so do you not see any trends towards uh, a, a kind of different approach to... Uh, maybe space is mankind's opportunity to have a different approach to things and not have the same old uh, rivalries and things like that. I mean, can you see a way round your prophecy of doom? Um, in many ways, yes. And I think actually the commercial sector has been fantastic for this. Over the last two days, we've seen many talks from many really interesting people in a variety of different sectors, both the public and commercial sectors, and really what we're seeing is a huge amount of cooperation beginning in the commercial sector. And I think that's what we kind of need to see happening over the next few years again and even more, almost as an example to governments of a good way of cooperating. That also being said, I think that uh, organisations like the Planetary Society, like the British Interplanetary Society, we need to be the ones kind of leading forward on this. We need to be the ones pulling our governments along saying we want cooperation in space and we want organisation in space that, so that space is used for everyone and for the benefit of humankind. Because if we let the governments do it on their own, then it's probably going to be the military specialists and the capitalists are going to really direct the conversation. Excellent. Do you know what we've done? We've done the quickest podcast ever. And we're now at the pub. <laughs> so I'm going to finish it. So that was Josh. Very, very funny. And his, his keynote speech was, was great. Then we, there was one by uh, a guy called Ian Crawford, mm -hmm. who's a planetary scientist. 
and he was giving the case for going back to the moon, which was really, Aha. really interesting. And it was multifaceted, and, and it was really, really compelling. Good as man. A, as a case to go back to the moon. And one of my favourite uh, keynote speeches was by a company called Open Cosmos. Mm. And so what they do is they build uh, specialised software and specialised um, CubeSat frames mm. so that you can build your own kind of CubeSats and they do the rest. So they can do all the flight profiles for you and, and everything and you just put in the parameters into the software. Yeah. So that's worth looking at. If you're interested in building your own satellite, go, to, I ever? go to the Open Cosmos uh, and that is a really, really cool initiative for building your own satellites. Matt, could I send um, a satellite into space to film and record your audio wherever you went? I don't see why not. I mean, I'm not saying I'm going to do it. I just want to know <laughs> if it's possible. Um, yes, you could. That's great news. Um, if anyone's listening uh, that works for a satellite company... Could you email in Jamie? <laughs> no, I'm just being silly. Uh, and and another guy was David Gooding, and we we've talked about him. And he was he's part of Surrey Satellites, and he he is the opticals optical payload engineer. Is he the guy you interviewed? No, I, I he was up for an interview, so oh. we're going to go up to Surrey Satellites and interview him about carbonite. TBC. First HD video from space from this kind of microwave-sized uh, satellite. And it's brilliant. Oh, my God, the footage was amazing. Watching that, watching that, you can see, like, cars along the motorways and planes taking off. So, yeah, so SpaceUp was good fun. And so hello to everyone I met at SpaceUp. Special thanks to Sam Franklin, who was there, who we, obviously we... We're waiting for him to meet you because uh, yeah. he, he actually is on our website. He's, he's one of the people that left a, a sparkling review on iTunes, that we, which is on our website. We and must I, be blood brothers. Well, yeah, yeah, I think you must be. It might be, yeah. Cheers, Sam. So, good, good surname, solid. Solid. Well, we did some great chats as well. And, we, and uh, George, myself and Colin and Henry, Colin's son, we uh, had a special space mission to a unknown planet Ooh. and we designed it all around my thermos flask. Of course you did. Yeah. So that was really cool. So we had wow. some little breakout sessions and stuff. Aren't thermos flasks genius, Matt? Oh, well, it was genius that day because I was very, very so hungover from your, the previous day and I needed to... Keeps your liquids warm for ages. <laughs> or cold. Or cold. Which is why I base my space hab around it to keep the astronauts inside at the temperature they wanted to be. Matt, you're a genius. Genius. Hey, Matt, you know what I want to speak about? NASA calls a press conference. Yeah. And we found out what? NASA, here's the headline, NASA finds ancient organic material, mysterious methane on Mars. Now, Matt, of course this gets everyone super excited, and it is super exciting, mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean they found life on Mars yet. Yet. So Michael Meyer, the lead scientist for NASA's Mars Exploration Programme, to be fair to him, this is what he said. Mm. Are there signs of life on Mars? We don't know, but these results tell us we're on the right track. See, that's good. That's, yes. that's good. Just sensible. Sensible. That is not not, not in anyone into a fury. But but the press, of course, went on to do precisely that. Of course they did. 
So yeah, so uh, there was there's more evidence of organic material that's been dug up by Curiosity, which is very very exciting. So that's in ver uh, in a new um, paper that's mm -hmm. been published, um, and these are tough organic molecules in three billion year old sedimentary rocks. Jeez. Now or organic molecules, all it really means is molecules based around carbon, mm. right? So so methane is organic. Uh, but it, so it doesn't necessarily mean it's being caused by life, but it mm. is the building blocks of life. Right. And obviously it could have been made by life, but it also could have been made by other geological processes, like that of things that happen out in space. Yes. So I'm going to read you a tweet. Whoa, here we go. From Professor Brian Cox on the very subject... If you just give me a second. Jamie, do you like Cox? Yeah, sure do. He is one of my favourite scientists too. <clears throat> OK, so Brian Cox tweeted um, about a week ago. He said, on the organics on Mars story, doesn't imply that there is or was life on Mars. Complex organic molecules such as amino acids, the building blocks of life, are routinely found in space. But it's further tantalising evidence that life could have existed on Mars and still could. But NASA went on to also point to a second paper uh, that described the seasonal variations in methane in the Martian atmosphere, which is also yes. indicative of life, mm. but not proof of life. Correct. Again, it could be uh, just more meteorological or geological processes creating that so but whatever it hasn't certainly hasn't ruled out life so it's 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 really tantalizing so it makes those exo mars and and mars 2020 more exciting it's like opening up your fridge and finding a plate with some crumbs on it and your cake's gone <laughs> doesn't necessarily mean that matt russell stole it and ate it but it could have been yeah. him. <laughs> it could have been him. Or it might have been you've got a mouse in your fridge. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, just beware, people, not to, not to get too excited. A story I missed, mm. and I don't know why, mm. is uh, this thing that's a little bit like the new Alexa on oh, the ISS. Yes. So this, this, this is a, a, flying, a flying artificial intelligent robot called Simon. Spelt C-I-M-O-N, which stands for the Crew Interactive Mobile Companion. Mm. Well, this is really Simon. interesting because this is what we were talking about in Mars Nation. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, Matt, tell us about this beast. So, it's the world's first flying autonomous astronaut assistant featuring artificial intelligence. And it's a technology demonstrator roughly the size of a medicine ball. So that's 32 centimetres and weighs five kilograms. Yes, and it's gone up with Alexander Guest. Hence, it's even more like an Alexa. It is. This is really interesting, Matt. Is it going to be talking like uh, in the wonderful film that we both love called Moon? Um, or, in, indeed, uh, the original Hal? Yeah, but it's actually more like Moon because it's got a little face on it. It's got a little face? Yeah, it's got a little face. Can we get a so, picture? And it's you know when we were at Estec, yeah, 
DL, the DLR is on that S-Tech site. Yeah. That's, that's where it was developed. So oh. it was, yeah, so Matt, is there video footage yet that we can put up a link of? of there is no... Moving around and talking? There's no video footage yet of it because is I don't... Is there a picture? I don't think they've unboxed it. Yes, there's a picture of it. But w maybe we should wait for the, the thing. So this is part of ESA's Industry 4.0, Artificial Intelligence, Astronautics, Human, Machine Interaction, Internet of Things Ooh. initiative. It's been built by 3D printing. And it has a little face display, which is intended to hover at the astronaut's eye level. And how does it hover? This is, this is the bit I think is really cool. It can freely move and rotate in all spatial directions using 14 internal fans. What? So it's got these little internal fans that mean it can just float around the space station with its little face coming up to you oh, I love and looking that. at you. I know how ace I think that's going to be really good for people on the space station because of exactly... What we talked about at Mars Nation, mental health for for one. Yeah, and so this thing fl is floating around, helping the astronauts, talking to them, and it can be male, female, or neutral in appearance and voice. Like sat-navs, could you give it maybe Ozzy Osbourne's voice? Yeah, why not? Which is quite similar to mine. You've left a bloody experiment out <laughs> on the Canada. <laughs> We're Sharon. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, it's going to be amazing. That is, uh, Simon, how cool is Simon? It's brilliant. Well, Simon, welcome. We can't wait to see the first video how footage. Do, I mean, have you ever heard of Simon before? No. I somehow have missed that story completely. Just missed it? How do we yeah. miss that? How do we miss it? I, yeah. Anyway, Simon, go check well, it there out. there we go. I will put pictures of Simon, and if, if, we can, if there is video of him. But yeah, it's Alexander Guest's little... Um, Little present to go up to the uh, I can't resist ISS. It. I'm simply going to have to Google it now. So I remember a couple of weeks ago, there was a, a mission called Grace FO mm -hmm. that went up with uh, one of the SpaceX launches. Yes, not 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 too long ago. Um, that is now fully functioning. It's a, I believe it's another German achievement. This one, uh, and it's two satellites that fly very near each other. Well, actually, not that near each other. They're approximately 137 miles apart. Mm. And then they use microwave ranging instruments to precisely measure the distance between them. Oh. like So it's very, very precise measurement between these two satellites. And as they go over the Earth, the gravity beneath them changes and they speed up and slow down with respect to each other. And so they actually start to draw a little plot of the gravity as it changes as they go over. Love and they've that. been testing it over the Himalayas. So obviously the Himalayas themselves are massive and create gravity. So, yeah. that, so you can see kind of the plot of the Himalayas as these things fly over. And that's what they've been testing. So that, that's proved that this system works. How cool is that? That is super cool. So it's going to be used to sort of work out where ice is melting, where groundwater's happening, and and so it's going to be. It, it's a very very new instrument in the arsenal of Earth observation. I think it's good. I think it's good too. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that comes out of Germ German Research Centre for Geosciences, the GFZ. Well, I'll tell you one thing. And, and it, how, ace, how ace is the town that, it, that the German Space Operations Centre is I'll let you pronounce in. it. Erbefehrfenhofen. Could some German kind person please tell Matt how he's pronouncing it wrong? It's, I think it's pronounced Erbefehrfenhofen. Okay. Why do you I'm, think it's No, I'm not going to attempt it. I'm just Why do you, hoping people will just. You're wimping out you. on me. You're wimping out on me. I am. 
Yes. Hi. Oh, get this. So it's so accurate in measuring the distance, it's down to one micron. Better than a micron, which is one-tenth the width of a human hair or the diameter of a blood cell. Less than the diameter of and a that's blood a, cell. At they're 137 miles apart and they measure the distance that's changed by less than a breadth of a human like by one-tenth of a human hair. I'm trying to get my... I was going to say I'm trying to get my head around that. I'm trying to get my hair, hair around literally that. Literally around hair? that. Yes. So oh. as it flies over you and me, it'll be able to tell the difference between well, like my gravity and your gravity. That's what I'm going to pay my satellite to do, fly over you. Oh, yeah, that's right, wasn't <laughs> it? <laughs> uh, oh, now I tell you what, I've seen a lot of tweets from our mate Jake from We Martians because oh, yeah. he's ever so... Ever so scared for a little poor uh, opportunity. He is, and Jake has some of the best T-shirts known to man. Oh, yeah, he does, doesn't he? One I I have to order is um, of Curiosity on his T-shirt, and I believe the sentence above it is, um, meanwhile, she persisted. I think it's something like that. Yeah. Beautiful. You sure it was Curiosity? Might have been Opportunity. I, I don't, don't know. know. I you can't know remember. What? I'll, um, I'll find out. Poor old opportunities been hiding. Do you know what's the problem? Is in, in dust storms, the solar panels don't work very well. And if the solar panels don't work very well, poor old opportunity won't be able to regulate her heat. And if she can't regulate her heat, she'll get too cold and she'll stop working altogether. So we have to wait and see if this dust storm is, is going to be just too much mm. or whether it's okay. Yeah. So, yeah. That's that's well, guys. Please, I'm, I'm pretty frightened by it. Keep your thoughts um, positive for opportunity. Jamie, do you want to hear my Robert Zubrin interview? <laughs> do I? Well, I think this is actually really ex- exciting. Um, the reason why I got Robert Zubrin on is because he'd done a really, really interesting paper in the Journal of the British Interplanetary Society. It was again, incredible. I read it, and it is about yes, a dipole sail. Well, it seems really, really feasible. And actually, to test it, a phenomenal price. Mm. So, I mean, compared to EM Drive, I mean, the hilarious thing, obviously, we we, de- we were talking about how EM Drive just is just like pretty much debunked now. Yes. Uh, but this thing has got much better theoretical thrust anyway than EM Drive had. Well, it, it's it's you know it's totally there's there's no there's no kind of physics that it that it breaks, so it's totally feasible. Well, Matt. I think we should hear the interview. I think we should have a quick listen. Roll it. Roll it. Uh, hello, Robert. Hello. Thanks for inviting me on the podcast. Absolutely my pleasure. It's good to have you on again. Uh, Robert, you've, you've recently published in the Journal of the British Interplanetary Society a paper about your new dipole drive, uh, and I, I was pretty excited about it. Uh, can you explain to the listeners... All about it, please. Okay, so what the dipole drive is, it's a form of uh, propellantless uh, propulsion. And that is, you know, one of the great difficulties in space travel with rockets is you have to carry propellant. And then you end up pushing not only the spacecraft, but propellant. And then you, you need more propellant to do that. And it goes exponential. And there you go. There are other forms of propellantless propulsion have been proposed. Uh, 
I think the only one that's been practiced at all is the solar sail that uses uh, light pressure from the sun to push a foil that is pulling a spacecraft along. But, of course, that diminishes as you move away from the sun, and you can only use it to push in certain directions. You can push directly away from the sun. You can push obliquely away, um, you know, by reflecting it, but you can't exert thrust towards the sun, for instance, with a solar sail. Mm-hmm. Um, there's um, electrodynamic tethers, uh, which have been proposed. They only work with a strong magnetic field, like close to the Earth, and um, they can only, once again, thrust in certain directions. There's something that has been uh, gotten a lot of attention, this EM drive, but that is uh, not supported by physics. I, I don't think it's real. Most people don't think it's real. And frankly, even the claims that have been made of it are not that impressive in terms of the amount of thrust per unit power that it can generate. Yeah, indeed. Now, there is another form which is related to the dipole drive, actually, and was the inspiration for it. Back in the 80s, I was responsible for co-developing a form of propulsion, another form of propellantless propulsion called the magnetic sail. I co-invented that with Dana Andrews, where you deploy a very large superconducting magnetic loop in space and interplanetary space and it makes a magnetic field and here comes the solar wind and uh it's deflected by the uh, magnetic field just as the solar wind is deflected by the earth's magnetic field you may have seen pictures of depicting the plasma from the sun going around the earth's magnetosphere Uh well this is you doing the same thing on a spacecraft and that can exert push away from the sun and it also has promises way of decelerating a spacecraft going through interstellar space that you accelerated by some other means. Um, but it requires a uh, high temperature superconducting magnets uh, to make work. And in the late eighties, that seemed about to happen because that's when uh, the liquid nitrogen class superconductors were first discovered, but it seemed to be moving very fast, but then they didn't get much further. Um, so that's been in, in waiting. And then around 2004, um, a Finnish, um, scientist uh, named uh, uh, Jan Hunen uh, said, well, okay, if you're going to try to get thrust from the solar wind, it, why not deploy a, a bunch of wires and charge them up positive and they would do electrostatic repulsion of the protons in the solar wind and um, that could create uh, drag, just as the magnetic sail creates drag against the solar wind but without a requirement for high-temperature superconductors. Mm. And um, there were a number of questions about whether this would work, whether charges would neutralize it. He presented arguments as to why it would happen, but to a a degree that would be manageable. And since then, uh, various other people have looked at that and have decided that he was mostly right and that the electric sail would work. But the electric sail is just a positively charged screen in uh, space, and it repels protons, tracks electrons, but the protons are much more massive. And so once again, it just creates drag. It, it c- cannot create uh, thrust. It cannot create lift even. Uh, uh, but then I looked at that and I said, well, what if we had two screens uh, parallel to each other? Imagine two big screens in space. And uh, depending upon where you are, if you're in low Earth orbit, they could be tens of meters in scale. If they're in interplanetary space, uh, hundreds of meters in scale. If you're in interstellar space, kilometers in scale. Um, 
the uh, but you have two screens, one charge negative, one charge positive, separated by a distance parallel to each other. So it's kind of like a giant capacitor, if you will. Mm-hmm. So if you have that, there's a strong electric field between the positive and negative screen. There, the, the two screens, one is charged positive, the other is charged negative. And so between the screens, there's a strong field. Um, outside the screens, there's no field at all. Because seen from the outside, the two fields of the two screens superimpose and match and neutralize each other. So let's say, um, for example, you're in low Earth orbit and you're moving forward. So there's a relative wind to you of the ionospheric plasma. The upper ionosphere is coming towards you at your rate of orbital motion. Coming towards you, the plasma does not see any electric field. But as soon as it moves between the screens, and the screens are diffuse, there may be thin wires, maybe a tenth of a millimeter thick, and with you know meter size square empty spaces between them. Um, so think of a checkerboard defined with meter size squares and lines between the squares that are a tenth of a millimeter. Yeah. Um, the the as soon as they get in there, they see the field, and if the if your positive screen is in the lead and your negative screen is trailing, all of a sudden the ions will be, um, uh, the, the, the nuclei will be um, forcefully shot uh, towards your rear. They will exert thrust. Electrons will be reflected. They will exert drag, but the protons are uh, 1,800 times as massive. So you're going to get net thrust. Um, and, and if you did it the other way, then you'd have net drag. So you could speed up. You could slow down. But furthermore, you could position this uh, sail at an angle to the wind, let's say a 45-degree angle. Then uh, let's say you have it in a reflective mode to the ions. They would come in, and then they would be reflected back out with the angle of incidence equals angle of reflection. So you could uh, actually exert what, what an aerodynamicist would call lift, which is to say force perpendicular to the wind. And so you can thrust, you can do drag, you can do lift, you can go in all directions. And this is also true in interplanetary space. You could have it as a sail reflecting the solar wind, uh, but like a solar sail and unlike a magnetic sail or electric sail, it wouldn't simply be drag. If you position it at an angle to the wind, it could create lift. And you can even have lift over drag significantly greater than one. You could thrust directly towards the sun. Okay, which a solar sail or magnetic sail absolutely cannot do. They are drag devices. And you, know, you can thrust in any direction at all. So there's no propellant needed, but power is needed. Okay, this is not a free lunch. Um, <laughs> if you are accelerating protons, there's energy involved. And so to create a given amount of, of, of thrust, okay, there's mass flow times the velocity that you accelerate them. The voltage difference between the two sails is energy, so that's proportional to velocity squared. But basically, if the plasma is thicker, you can use a lower voltage and have less power uh, required for a given amount of thrust. But if the plasma is thin, as it is in interstellar space, then you have to use high voltage to get appreciable thrust. So the performance of the system, it works best the thicker the plasma is. The one thing that uh, jumped out at me is why do the um, protons and electrons not see this force in between the uh, in, in in between the sails? How come they don't see that until they actually get there? Well, imagine imagine if you have a, this is a, a a classical problem in uh, electrostatics. If you had a, an infinite flat sheet, 
okay, uh-huh. and you charge it, um, and you look at the electric field, the electric field is uniform, straight up and straight down in both directions. The electric field of a, of a point charger of a sphere radiates in all directions, and it goes down as the square of the distance. Uh, the electric field of a cylinder that, uh, that's infinitely long will go down as the first order of the distance. An electric field of a plane doesn't go down at all. It's constant. The, the, now, of course, a flat sheet is not an infinite plane, but for the most part, it, it comes pretty close. Okay. Now, imagine you had two such sheets and you laid them down right on top of each other. So the net charge was zero. Hmm. Okay. So uh, clearly in that case, there would be no field seen outside of the apparatus. What if you separate them? What if these two screens, let's say, let's, let's, let's imagine these screens as, as big squares a kilometer on a side. Uh-huh. We separate them by uh, 50 meters. You have these two sheets that are pretty close to each other. Clearly between the two sheets is a strong field going from one to the other because the fields of each of these sheets are in opposite directions. So when it, in the place between them, the two fields, uh, in other words, let's say you have the positive sheet on the left and the negative sheet on the right. So you have a field going from left to right. The positive charges, she, uh, their field uh, goes away from the sheet. Mm-hmm. The negative charge, its field goes towards the sheet. In between them, those two add up. So you get a double field between them. But outside of them, Okay, if you lay those two fields on top of each other, they neutralize each other. So there's no field seen outside except right at the edges. So what, what about the what about the protons and the electrons that actually do hit the sail material, the, the actual th- the thin wires? Does that does that affect the performance? Yeah, it does, but only a tiny minority are going to hit because even let's say you have a you have a, a, a positive wire. So an electron is attracted towards that, but uh, it only really has a slight chance of hitting it, even though it's attracted. It's like a, a comet going by a planet where the planet bends its course, but it doesn't make it hit it because um, the, the angular momentum is, is conserved. It, it, it really is only an oddball that hits. And so if you have squares that are a meter on a side and wires dividing the squares that are a tenth of a millimeter on a side, there's only one chance in 10,000 it'll hit. Mm. Okay. If you went with squares 10 meters on a side, there's only one chance in 100,000 it'll hit. If you were doing an interstellar distance, would, would, would you have to factor that particular element in? It would, did it, does it degrade the, uh, the wire to be hit by these? Well, it could, yes. So the, the issue then... You're right. In other words, the key concern here is not degrading of the performance in terms of loss of thrust because things are hitting the wires instead of going through them. It's degrading of the wire. And Mm. so you'd have to do the calculation of having enough spare wires that, you know, if you lost 10 percent of them, the show goes on. Yeah. So what are the currently what are the techn, what, what's the sort of uh, roadmap for a technology like this what are the roadblocks so far Well um if I had a small amount of money I could do a much more extensive computational simulation of this uh if we had somewhat larger funds we could do a cubesat nurse we could mm. demonstrate this in low earth orbit with a small satellite and um I think that should be done 
And uh, even that is, is, I mean, we're not talking, you know, zillions here. We're talking uh, $500,000 to $1 million to do a CubeSat demonstration of this. What sort of what sort of size sale would you have to do to do that? Would, well, that what? would be a pretty small sale. Um, I let me just see. I have some numbers somewhere around here. Um, I mean, it'd be tens of meters, and and the sale itself would weigh less than a kilogram. So, so quite similar to the uh, Planetary Society's solar sale kind of concept that, that they're putting up. That's right, similar but- in scale to that. Yes, and there's a CubeSat. CubeSats are, are, are satellites that they come in modules, each a liter and, uh, you know, 10 centimeters on a side. And you mm. put them, you can fly them singly or in groups of two, three, six, or 12, uh, you know, put together as blocks. Mm-hmm. And I think we could do this as a one or two module CubeSat uh, thing. That is, it would be one to two liters in volume, the actual satellite. It would weigh between one and three kilograms, and the sale would weigh less than a kilogram. So well within the reach of a, a university or a, <laughs> someone doing their PhD, they, they kind of end up doing these kind of projects. Uh, have you, have you had, what sort of interest have you had uh, since publishing in terms of uh, taking this project forward? Well, I have run into some people uh, that have, I mean, in, in, in uh, government who have some interest in this, and uh, it's possible uh, we might be able to get. I have a small aerospace company, you know, called Pioneer Astronautics. Might be able to get funding from NASA or DARPA to do an experiment. I think uh, it would be very much worth doing, and and we could demonstrate it there. And then after that, one could look at using it in interplanetary space. It, it has a number of places it can be used. It could be used in LEO, where you have the rather thick upper ionosphere that is thick in plasma terms. Then. Uh, it, it works less well in high Earth orbit because what happens there is the plasma thins out and you don't have the solar wind. And so you're left and, and also the velocity of a spacecraft in high Earth orbit, like in GEO, for example, uh, is quite low. It's only three kilometers a second compared to eight in low Earth orbit. Mm-hmm. But then once you get outside of the Earth's magnetosphere, while the plasma is thin, it has a very high velocity. You know, you got the solar wind 500 kilometers a second. So even though it's thin, it, it, it's, it, it's going fast. So you got, you know, it, it's like an airplane at very high altitudes that's traveling uh, supersonic, like the SR-71. Mm. The air is thin, but the thing's moving fast, so it does get a good amount of uh, dynamic pressure under its wings. And then you can go interstellar. Uh, unlike a magnetic sail or electric sail, the dipole drive can actually go faster than the solar wind. Uh, and uh, while there isn't a theoretical limit to its its velocity, uh, as you go faster and faster, you have to increase the voltage difference between the sails, and this makes it less and less efficient. So um, I did some calculations, and using reasonable numbers, it seems like a good propulsion system for getting you uh, to say, uh, you know, like the 550 AU mission, the, you know, to the sun's gravitational focus, um, that's about 1% of a light year. That is a practical mission for a dipole drive propelled spacecraft. If you're talking about trying to get to relativistic speeds to go to Alpha Centauri or something, uh, you have to assume very aggressive numbers to make a, a case. 
Now, if we could beam the power to it, because once again, it doesn't need propellant, but it does need power. So if you could have a very lightweight power supply, i.e. one that is beamed to you, then uh, perhaps it could become an interstellar propulsion system. Uh, one thing it can do for an interstellar mission, like the mag sail or the electric sail, is it can be used to slow it down. So, for instance, if you have, like, you know, they're talking about accelerating small payloads with laser push light sails, the Breakthrough mm-hmm. Initiative people talk about that. Um, so if you... You say, how do I slow such a thing down at the other end? Well, a dipole drive will do that. So will a mag sail or uh, electric sail, but the dipole drive, unlike them, will allow you to steer while you're slowing down. In other words, it can create lift, you know, perpendicular Mm. uh, uh, force and not just drag. And also it would give you a, a much more capable propulsion system within the destination stellar system. It's a, it sounds like a very, very, um, fascinating and uh, novel uh, concept for a, a propellantless drive and, I, and I, uh, thanks very much for coming on and talking about it Robert particularly considering <laughs> you're supposed to be on your honeymoon right now <laughs> if you want um, I have some charts which uh, maybe you could post alongside the, um, the, the the podcast absolutely yeah that that'd be brilliant yeah all right so I will send you these charts and and you'll also see in the charts, uh, you know, there are other things. You could have little dipole drives. Notice you could have a spacecraft with a big dipole drive for propulsion and a little one for attitude control and steering and you know that kind of thing, like an empennage on an airplane. You know, you could imagine such things um, as well. To could the di- could the actual dipole sails themselves actually generate some of the the power as well? Is they could possible? if you're slowing down. If they are primarily being used as drag devices, that they can generate some power. It's conservation of energy. But in the paper so far, I have not assumed that I'm getting any such power from such means. I'm assuming that all the power is being supplied by an onboard power supply of some kind. But yes, that is a fertile area to see how one could um, make use of, 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 of that aspect of it to generate power. Well, thanks very much for sending me the slides. I will stick those in the show notes that go along with each episode. Excellent. So send me a link when it's up. I will do. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Okay, bye. Bye. So, yeah, Robert Zubrin there. He's a genius. He is a genius. I am a fan. And if you haven't read his books or book specifically on Mars, got to go out and get them. Yeah. Do you know what? I, I, I am a fan because there's one point that he does make, uh, but he he sometimes makes it in a way that maybe winds people up. But the point that where where you where people sort of say, "Oh yeah, humans must cut back because we're ruining the planet," and his his whole push is no. What we need to do is innovate and go out into the stars and save the planet that way. So instead of pushing back. We should push forward. And I really agree with that Absolutely. sentiment. I genuinely really agree with it. So, yeah, good on you, Robert Zubrin. Good on you. And most amazing, of course, was the fact that he was getting married on the on the day before the Four interview. hours before your interview <laughs> with him, he was getting hitched. He was tweeting about his marriage. Imagine yes. say, telling your new wife that you had... To, uh, although, Matt, you know what? Yeah, she, like, she'd have understood yeah, she, because it's the Interplanet yeah, podcast. Uh, shall we go on honeymoon? No, I've got a podcast yeah. to do. What honeymoon secret have you got planned? Oh, I've just got to record a podcast. She probably laughed in his face because she thought he must have been joking. <laughs> but then when she said it was with Matt and Jamie. And then she was like, oh, it's yeah, fine. It's cool. 
Yeah. And now, Jamie, 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 I've got one go. space fact before we leave our listeners well, in it peace. better be a good one. Is the first use of the word black hole. Oh, yes, when do you think that was? One. Yeah, when do you think that was? Well, I think we mentioned this on the, when we talked about black holes. But when was the first use of the word black hole? Oh. Can you remember? I don't know. So, it was by a science journalist called Anne Ewing. Not, ah, not, she's not yes. from Dallas. Yes. And it was, well, she might be from Dallas, actually, I don't know. Uh, in her article, Black Holes in Space, dated the 18th of January, 1964. 64. Now, remember that, 1964, uh, which was a report on a meeting of the American Association of the Advancement of Sciences, right? So that was in Ohio. Now, in, in December 1967, a student uh, suggested the phrase black hole, a uh, lecture by John Wheeler. Of course, mm. the um, incredibly famous scientist. Uh, Wheeler adopted the term for its brevity and advertising value, and that is when the phrase black hole caught on, right? Wow. 1967, 1964, so round about the sort of mid-60s, mm. right? What year did Einstein die? Well, that was 1955. Yeah, so Einstein... This is uh, Einstein... Never heard the phrase black hole. That's so weird. <laughs> so what did he refer to them as? Well, that's, that's something that I need to go back to. I mean, obviously there's the Einstein-Rosen bridge or whatever mm. it is. Maybe they hadn't really got to the, uh, that Maybe formulation. Maybe he called it of... the dark gap. No, because that probably would have caught on. Yeah. The dark gap. No, but anyway, so yeah, so Einstein never knew about black holes or in, in the way that we talk about black holes. Yeah, that's, that's. I mean, I, that's I've a, always associated Einstein and black yeah, holes. That's a strange thing to think about. I absolutely associate them together. And Einstein, yeah. Well, Matt, never heard the phrase black hole. I'm glad, and I'd like to thank you for giving me that fact because, as you know, I bloody love black holes and facts about them. And I love Einstein. Oh, it's a double whammy then. It isn't is it? a bit of a double whammy. Matt? Yes. Um, question. Mm hmm. I'm new to this show and I'd like to contribute. What can I do? Well, I tell you what, one of the best ways of contributing, and we would had some very good ones this week, we've had oh, some we new did. patrons this week, um, is to go to Patreon mm -hmm. and just give what you can. You can, you, I think you can give really small amounts or really large amounts. I like that it's accessible for everyone. If yeah. you enjoy the show, it makes us do what we do. We, I know we bang on about it, and but if, it's really important to us. And if your name is Richard Branson, Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, then you can donate a million pounds and Jamie and I will do this full time. We can, but only for six months because, you know, we've got expensive taste. Oh, man, we've got expensive taste. I mean, <laughs> we're, just, we're just off to caviar and But champagne. I tell you what, on the, other, on the flip side of the coin, we'd love for you to get in touch and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook... Um, and please subscribe if you enjoy the show. Please tell us what you want us to talk about. Please um, send us any questions, or if there's anything, any, anyone you want us to interview. Ooh. Because, you know, we, we have some power now. Yeah, get involved um, with the interviews. And actually, we have had some great suggestions for interviews, uh, which, we, which we have followed up. So hopefully, we have. they will come off. Well, we love you getting in touch, so oh, please keep doing it. What was our plan? What was our plan earlier on? So, everyone listening, check this one out. Here we go. If you want us to interview Elon Musk, yes. tweet Elon Musk. Hey, at Elon Musk, why don't you go 
on the Interplanetary podcast. I'd love to hear that. I'd interview. love to hear that interview. So we're we're trying to see what we can do uh, to secure a, an interview with and, and I reckon the if, rare Elon. And I reckon if all our listeners did that, we'd have it in you the reckon? bag. You yeah, it's got. How could he ignore it? Oh, he I could, mean, it he may could, he it may even it. be the first time the internet crashed since Kim Kardashian showed her bum. Right, are you are you saying that we're going to break the internet? Yeah. Right, guys, well, you, you have to do it now. It's either that or Uranus. Yeah. Matt, do you no, know you I can... I might f- edit that Do you know you can fit 63 Earths inside Uranus? <laughs> That's what? true. <laughs> what about live wires? Mm. So, have a great week, people. Keep in touch. And remember... Mm-hmm. Look up. Explore. Bye. Bye, podcast.